Hi, my name's Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast. Today, I'm talking to Ryan from Parallel Carbon about his direct air capture solution, which also apparently generates hydrogen, so I'm led to believe. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, we normally talk to academics who've got a paper. Do you have a paper or, or are you not an academic type person? Yeah, no, no paper. This company spun out of an idea formed while trying to start a company based fixing carbon removal, trying to create a product that actually meets the market where it, where it is. In fact, while I do have a PhD in material science uh, and a lot of background in applied geochemistry and concrete and cement, I'm actually one of the rare unpublished PhDs. Uh, <laughs> papers never, never how do you get How do you get an, a PhD without publishing it? A lot of things locked behind uh, embargoes while patents are working their way through. And right, okay. Yeah, so there's a thesis. It's just, it's also behind the scenes still been embargoed for a couple of years. Okay, so it's like you will eventually publish your thesis, but it's currently secret, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that is that to do with your parallel carbon work? Or No, not? it's it's totally unrelated. It was okay. working on some other... And where stuff. did you do your thesis? Uh, at uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey. Oh, right. Alan Robot works there, doesn't he? One of the yeah. big beasts of geoengineering. So um, you run this parallel carbon company. So what's your role in parallel carbon? You're the CEO? Yeah, I'm the CEO. Right now, we're still a small team. Me and my CTO are the only employees. She's a like so, so you're the you're the chief, but you're chief of nothing, right? You're yeah, chief of nothing. You're chief chief of yourself, right? Okay. So, have you raised money, or are you looking to raise money? Yeah, we've raised a very small small pre-seed round to basically validate the idea. We've spent the past year and a half okay. proving out the science. We're raising money now for our seed round, trying to get enough money to build the team and grow our prototype off the bench scale and into something more realistic. Okay. And so do you want to start off by giving me a bit of an idea about the basic technology behind what you're doing? Because people who listen to the show are likely to be fairly familiar with the key carbon dioxide removal techniques just to give people a recap for the humanities graduates. You've got low temperature DAP, which is normally some kind of sorbent, and you've got high temperature that which will use a uh, something similar to a calcining process where people are creating strong bases and then reacting those similar to like a carbon engineering process where whereas the low temperature process is more similar to what you're having pine works and then you've got the various electrochemical things like planetary hydrogen and ebb and all of that kind of stuff that work on seawater and various different types of stuff related to uh, electrolyzing things or pushing them through membranes like i think repair do a membrane technology so those are a diverse bunch but they are different from the main technologies that rolled out over most of the uh, most of the more advanced plants the ones that are being physically built mammoth and bison and uh, pale blue dot plants for all the various different companies that work in this space so that's a whistle stop tour of what's around at the moment but you're doing something which is a bit fancy pants and different so what exactly are you doing? Yeah, we're growing fancy pants by uh, being as low-tech as possible with some other high-tech bits to make the low-tech possible. So <clears throat> essentially, we are doing something very similar, I guess, to the processes that use high-temperature calcination, except we don't want to use high-temperature calcination. Uh, the goal of Parallel Carbon was to design a director capture technology that was uh, operationally and economically compatible with intermittent renewable power. Uh, we know director capture is expensive, or at least has high capex. Uh, we know that with that high capex, you want to run your facility around the clock to make sure you're getting as much CO2 produced as possible, so you can amortize your cost, uh, your capex cost to be as low as lowest fraction of the total cost as possible. So, re so recap your process. The logic you're using is to use cheap stuff so that you can only use it occasionally and still make money because you're not using expense you're not having expensive stuff that's just sitting around waiting for you to use it and therefore you are having it's like having a buying a very expensive car and leaving it on your drive because you only drive a thousand miles a year right so if you buy a very cheap car it doesn't matter you only drive it a thousand miles a year because you have not spent very much on your car right yeah, that's the that's, principle that's that you're following okay absolutely so so your your designed to work with cheap off-peak electricity so in a similar way to I've got a dehumidifier at home that I only turn on at night because I need to dry the walls out in my Victorian house that is never designed to be lived in <laughs> in the same way that modern people live in it. 
with lots of sealed up windows and doors. And uh, my Victorian house does not like that. So I have to put a dehumidifier on. But I only run it at night time because electricity is very expensive. And what you're saying is that you, you've got a similar concept with that, that you, you're design, designing it to run with low or negatively priced electricity so that the economics makes sense by having a process which is very cheap to build. You can then only use it occasionally and it, it's not silly. You don't have a, a situation where you've got you know, far too much money tied up or it's so expensive to run that you just can't make money even when you run it, right? Right. So that's that's almost correct. Uh, we are. Uh, I'll, I'll just hit some points that are where it's not correct. <laughs> um, so first of all, yes, it'd be great if we could run director capture on negative power prices uh, only, whatever ten percent or less of the year in, in grids that are really over penetrated with renewable power. Um, we don't think that that's going to definitely be a long term solution or a scalable solution, and it also doesn't really work out super well with the economics. It can work out. It's not great. Uh, the ultimate goal for us is to be able to build director capture uh, that can basically be located wherever renewable power and CO2 storage overlap. So essentially, we aim to be deploying direct air capture with dedicated renewable power out in the, let's say, the middle of the U.S. near a CO2 storage well. So let me just focus on unpacking that because you, you said a lot, which is of pretty great significance in what you just said there. So. Renewable power comes from wind, solar, geothermal, and storage comes primarily from basalt rocks, which are not found a lot at the surface. Um, there's mainly continents made of granite, and the ocean bed is basalt. And then the uh, you can also store in solar and aquifers. So in the US, you're basically storing pumping CO2 into rocks, which have got a lot of salt water, or some of them are fresh. Um, and they're basically big spongy rocks underneath the ground, but you don't have a lot of chemical reactivity, whereas the chemical reactivity comes from the basalts, right? So you'll, you'll in principle, you can store um, CO2 by reacting it chemically with a basic rock, like a basalt, right? So there's an acid-base reaction between the acid gas that forms carbonic acid and the, and the basic rock, which gives you the alkaline part of your equation, and then that will uh, sort itself out and form a... Um, carbonate rock and and your your carbon dioxide is then locked up for essentially forever right that's pretty much how the whole process works right yeah that's right okay so um your when you say you, you need your renewable energy and you want to find a way of overlapping it what type of renewable energy is your process use is it electrically driven or do you need low grade heat or high grade heat or what what's the what's the product that you are buying to put in in terms of an energy product that yeah you're so our, our, our goal is to run on wind or solar electricity uh some simple as that where we're not we are a low temperature process slash ambient <laughs> temperature and pressure there's no temperature and pressure swinging going on it's just an electric okay. driven process okay so you've got an electric you said it's comparing it to high temperature dac the high temperature dac's a calcining driven process so you typically would use high grade heat to drive off carbon dioxide but you're saying that you don't do that. You're doing a different process. So is yours like an aqueous alternative to using high-grade heat or what? How are you yeah. making your... That, that's actually absolutely correct. We are, instead of driving the CO2 out of our calcium carbonate uh, captured CO2 captured sorbent, we are doing a pH swing instead of a temperature swing, right? We're instead of going to 900 okay. Celsius and driving off, we're dropping the calcium carbonate in acid to extract the CO2. Okay, and how? So we've had a pH swing company come and talk to us about their lovely shiny solution. That was um, Holy Winberg and Andrew Bergman, who came on our show about a year or so ago, to talk about their pH swing technology. But I, I think you've probably got quite a different process. So, what is it about your technology that is different from all these other pretenders in the market who can only aspire to your brilliance? Yeah. So the, um, I guess. I, I missed that episode, so I'll have to go back and listen to it. Well, I mean, are you familiar with the work of Rinberg and Bergman or not? I mean, you, you no, no, that's not. Okay. But it's no, a well, you're, they're your competitor, so you might want to go and find out what they're doing so that you can uh, put sugar in their petrol tank and uh, uh, hobble their horses and all of the other things that greedy commercial people do to each other to try and stop them uh, succeeding. So... Who do you know of in your space that does pH swing 
technologies, if you're not familiar with Rimberg and Bergman. Although, to be fair, Rimberg and Ber Bergman are not very commercially minded. They're more research type people. So I don't know whether they've actually founded a company, but they certainly have published research and done work on uh, uh, on their stuff because we've done them on the show to talk about it. But what um, what firms are you aware of that do pH swing work? So I think you should probably think of us as somewhere as in, in, in the mixture, if you're thinking about spectrums of what we're doing in, in CDR, probably somewhere between heirloom and planetary. Uh, so we're missing those technologies. In, in, okay, so let, let me recap this. So heirloom have got a, a carbon capture and storage calcining process. So they make quick lime, um, calcium oxide, which I think they then hydrate and use as an air contact. So they have trays that are covered in what looks like powdered cocaine, and then they just leave them in the air until the until the air slowly reacts with them. So they don't, they don't have any sophisticated air handling equipment. They just have trays of the, like a millimeter or so deep of this finely powdered calcium hydroxide that slowly reacts with the air over a period of time. And because they're not spending any money, the stuff's super cheap, right? So like the limestone input costs you like approximately nothing per ton. So they can have huge amounts of it and they make it put it in trays and they just leave it until it reacts with the air right and planetary hydrogen do complicated things with electrochemistry that i don't understand because i'm a mechanical engineer so i know that they make hydrogen out of their process hence it being called planetary hydrogen It'd be a bit weird if it didn't uh, i don't really i can't remember the difference i think they is it a double membrane process that they use or have i got confused so i don't know if they transition to using membranes but I guess for sake of argument here, we are not using membranes at all. You're using just a... a uh, we are using, using a, a membraneless electrolyzer that splits water, but also makes acids and bases in this How do you have a pH swing process without a membrane? How does that even work? Yeah, yeah. so uh, we, we have broken our director capture process into kind of three sub, sub processes. Um, okay. Our air contactor is probably similar to heirlooms. Um, it's a little bit different because uh, our calcium hydroxide is more reactive than theirs, we like to think. <clears throat> our calcium hydroxide. How is your calcium hydroxide better than theirs? I mean, it's just calcium hydroxide. Uh, yes, that is uh, partially true. The the difference comes down to uh, the cycling rates, making particles that are say more reactive, but can complete their carbonation process more quickly. Uh, so is it the surface morphology, or is it grain size, or what? Yeah, size is is the the intention here is to reduce the size so we can get more throughput uh, from each. Yeah ton whatever of calcium hydroxide we have as our in our contactor okay okay so, so the calcium hydroxide converts to calcium carbonate through contact with air just like heirloom we then process that calcium carbonate in a ph swing process not a not in an in the electrolyzer that we have on the back end here we're taking our calcium carbonate dropping it in a tank of acid essentially co2 comes off we use the calcium soup <laughs> uh, the, the aqueous stream full of calcium oversaturated calcium ions uh expose it to a base where our calcium hydroxide precipitates and then we re recapture it out of solution and put it back into our air contactor the the trick here is that we're using an electrolyzer to make the acids and bases and kind of essentially using them as like if someone uses a battery store electricity or store power for later we're how, storing how acids and bases for later hang on how do you separate the acids and bases without a membrane you just rely on the acids going towards one pole of your electro yeah. cell and the base going to the other and you just sort of siphon them off or what yeah that's essentially correct it is a flow separation mechanism so mechanism so yes we're uh, the, the we form acid near near the anode we're forming base near the cathode uh, and the flow through the electrolyzer keeps the acids and bases separated as they form okay so you're relying on a electrical attraction of the acids to one pole and the alkali to the other pole right so if you yes. just scoop up, you just scoop up your solvent near one pole, you're going to have more acid in it, and you scoop up the solvent near the other one, it's going to have more base in it, right? Yeah, that's right. And so your minus pole gives you what? Oh, the minus, minus is pole the, is a the, the, the minus the, is a cathode, right? And does that attract? Yeah, so that, that's our that's our uh, base and our hydrogen come off our cathode. So okay, so that you're evolving hydrogen at the minus electrode, the cathode, right? Uh, and the yeah. And and then and the base and then the acid is coming off or concentrating around the plus electrode. So when you pull the you siphon the water 
what's the substrate in? Is it water? Is it an aqueous process or is it something else? Yeah, it, it's, or napalm it, or something. No, it's it, it's 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 water. It's water with salt, salt splitting as well. Okay, so it's a salty water process. So you've got your your minus electrode. You're getting you're evolving hydrogen and you're you're creating a base in the water, and then you've got plus electrode where you've got an acid, and then you're 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 taking the acid and base. You then react carbonate rock in acid. You evolve carbon dioxide, which you then can blow down a hole in the ground. What is the acid that you'll form? Uh, we're, we like to be a little cagey about it. We are splitting a salt. It's it's we like, it's a non-chlorine acid. That's like what we what like to say. Oh, so okay, so you've got a secret squirrel salt that you're splitting up, and it's not so it's not seawater. It's like another salt you're putting in, and so you end up with a so you end, you end up with a calcium something that's not calcium chloride, uh, and that's your so you're turning your acid and your carbonate rock into a metal something that's not chloride and then you've got that and then you react it with a bag to switch out your calcium iron right to get your mm -hmm. calcium back and then can you tell us what your base is or is that a secret squirrel base as well yes, sir, it's a secret secret squirrel base but secret, um, secret squirrel base okay essentially the salt reforms right we're, we're reforming the salt. it's still in solution and that solution goes back into the electrolytes so where is the hydrogen coming from this process it coming from the water or what yeah it, hydrogen forms during the our salt are you, are you evolving it also makes hydrogen okay. evolving oxygen at the the anode then or, or not yeah that's right okay so you get oxygen bubbling off at the anode the plus electrode and then you've got hydrogen bubbling off at the minus electrode and, and hydrogen's worth a lot of money and oxygen's worth a little bit of money right so are you <laughs> venting the are you venting the oxygen or you're actually using it for anything useful or what i expect to vent it we don't work we don't work it into our economics obviously if there's a nice situation where we can sell it going to but yeah i mean people yeah. do use oxygen they use hospitals and all kinds of stuff right yeah yeah, yeah. um so, we're, we're thinking we're for build these large plants or that facilities out near a co2 storage well there's not going to be great oxygen demand nearby no i mean you'd have to have a very very big hospital to use that amounts <laughs> of this stuff right yeah. okay so the oxygen is just wasted but the hydrogen comes off and you can use it for powering trucks or whatever you want to do is chemical feedstock that kind of thing right and then you're evolving CO2, but the CO2 doesn't come off in the electrolyzer, does it? It comes across, comes off in your acid washing step. So you get a load of carbonate rocks, one would assume calcium carbonate, wash them with the acid, and you're basically using it in a reaction vessel. I guess you probably want to heat that reaction vessel. So does it require low-grade heat to get it going? No, we, we, we don't need heat, uh, heat requirement. So there's no heat requirement. You just rely on a cold reaction or an ambient reaction with the between the carbonate rock and the acid. And that'll evolve carbon dioxide and you can then compress that carbon dioxide and blow it down a hole in the ground right that's right okay uh well okay so you've got a secret squirrel process you can't tell us about it wouldn't it always be calcium hydroxide that you're directing because it's an aqueous process if you're reacting calcium with if you're reacting limestone with the um with acid then it's in water and so unlike in a cement kiln you're not evolve you're not creating quick lime are you calcium oxide you're creating slaked lime because it's a water-based process so you would never get um you'd never get a slaked lime a quick lime out of a process like that because the calcium oxide's got really 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 high affinity for water and it's just not going to let go of the water that's in the process right yeah and that's actually for that's very intentional and that actually has some awesome benefits we're really excited about so let, let, me, uh, let me dive in here so okay. calcium oxide nobody really wants it for DAC Calcium oxide doesn't do much. It always converts to calcium hydroxide before it carbonates into calcium carbonate. Yeah. And that means that it's a, you know, it's an aqueous mediated process or a full hydration. Thing. But it will, it will, it will hydrate just left in the air, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is, and what we're trying to avoid is calcium hydroxide carbonates best in humid environments or wet environments. If you need to take your calcium hydroxide that's been converted to calcium carbonate and it's been in a wet environment there's going to be residual water that you have to dry before you put it into your calciner if you're using a high temperature calcination step we don't want to waste the energy of evaporating water or have to worry about only locating in really humid environments where there won't be excess water that we have to dry we're trying your, to your input is solid limestone so you're just taking solid limestone right from a crusher or whatever right mm -hmm. and that's your input step yeah well, were you yeah. sending your limestone round and round and round? I'm not quite clear. Yeah, the limestone goes round and round like any other sorbent. It's it's a uh, it's so like in so like in the well, that's not true. That's not true because the origin process is once through. So oh, they okay. don't. I don't think they recycle their their limestone. 
but heirloom do recycle their limestone interesting yeah we're, we're recycling like heirloom okay so you get uh, one batch of limestone you just get started with some limestone but you don't need more limestone as you go on because the limestone goes round and round like the biscuit and bag puss right uh, so what your how do your contactors work so you're, you're generating this slate lime and then you're using like a tray based contactor like heirloom uses or what yeah essentially it's tray based we've got some other things we can do because we're we're wet we're, we, we can do wet carbonation I mean, we've got we can keep our calcium hydroxide at its optimal wetness throughout the process to convert more quickly to calcium carbonate and then that wet calcium carbonate is what enters our aqueous process for but why do you why do you need to i mean from my way of describing what you're doing right it seems like your whole shtick is that you've got a process which is dominated by this aqueous secret squirrel step right but what i'm not clear on is what the benefit of that is because why would you put that process and make it as a whole process why do you need to bother with air contactors and stuff like that because if your innovation step is in your in your central electrolyzer then what is the point of you trying to do all of these other pointless bits of the process that other people are perhaps better than you at are the biggest and most important part of our innovation is that we are trying to decouple direct air capture from its energy intensity or its source of energy so let me let me break that down we use intermittent renewable power when it's low cost when it's available when the sun's shining when the wind's blowing to power the electrolyzer yes yeah. use the acids and bases were made in that process and we store them on site and then we use yeah. the air contactor and the aqueous process around the clock without power or without you know large amount yeah of but so does heirloom and i think they use resistive heating don't they they can process? i uh i'll call them out and hopefully they'll come on the show and explain it to me because i haven't figured it out how they want to run a high temperature cal electric calciner around the clock and this comes down to the cost of electricity that they're going to be buying for that process um if you need firm electric firm clean power that's 24 7. Do they? no but, i mean they, they, they absolutely they're going to need so I, I thought the point of a calciner is it's a it's a batch process right so you can heat up rocks until they squirt off all the co2 and then the co2 is gone right um and then that batch is finished now you can have a continuous flow process that's like continually putting more um limestone in but you don't have to you can just calcine off the limestone that you've got and then stop right so i don't really see how an electric resistive process i be... i think that's wrong i think that they're going to be running it continuously they're going to be feeding calcium carbonate into the top and re receiving their calcium oxide out the bottom out of this whatever tall uh electric calcium is that is that is that is that a necessary part of their process is it impossible for them to do this without having that um uh 24 7 operation or are they just choosing Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> not, nothing is impossible as a matter of is it going to be economic and i think this is well, yeah exactly yeah yeah but, but what i'm saying is my understanding of it, an electric calciner is pretty easy to on and off like a tumble right so if you've got five hours of cheap electricity a day you run your electricity through it for five hours a day and then the rest of the day you don't use it and it because it's just an electrically resistive wire it's not a high capex part of the process right so can't they also do what you're doing on an intermittent basis just like you're doing so i think the answer is they they're going to have since a lot of sensible heat loss if they're turning their high temperature thing on and off on and off if it takes an hour to get up to operating temperature which is i think probably uh generous if it takes an hour to get to operating temperature to maintain the way they're creating their particles make sure they have that high surface area from whatever smiled introduction oh, because their process yeah. is a bit fussy right you can't just like right. because they've got to get the particle size right they can't just fiddle around with it and just use it in a ropey way they've got to have it precisely right finely balanced to make it do what they're supposed to be doing this right? is this is where i believe so but this is something where i'd love to uh, hear them come on and explain well you can come and interview them because the point of review or two <laughs> is that they're all reviewer too right that's great there's yeah, nothing special about, there's nothing special about me um so you're you're basically saying that your process is, is easily turn off and onable to give a british humorous reference that nobody else will get if they're not british and of a certain age but your your process is easily turn off and onable and whereas your contactor yeah so exactly continuous because uh, it's passive right yeah the, the the electrolyzer is the only part that's our, is our is 96 percent of our energy consumption and it turns on and off uh, essentially with like you know, 10 minutes <laughs> flick, of, flick of a switch right yeah essentially uh, okay 
So that, that rapid um, dispatchability, or I guess flexible power, industrial power, demand, that makes means we can integrate with renewable power very well. Can't you just make green cement with this just as easy as you can make direct air capture? Um, the answer is, I think someone is doing something similar. There's a company out there called Sublime who is making calcium hydroxide uh, through a similar process or, or electrolyzers a little different. Okay. But Why is it different from this? I think that comes down to the architecture uh, of the of the electrolyzer. We are designing yeah, exactly. our I mean, like, I understand that it'll be different, but what I'm saying is like, what it's is different. the design reason why it has to work differently? Yeah, this is, comes down to uh, being able to uh, appropriately use renewable power for the proper economics in the director capture setting. I think they are trying to run their sublime, mentioning sublime because they're kind of like planetary, kind of like with their electrolyzer. They're going to, I think, try to just run largely around the clock or that's incorrect. They're running whenever renewable power is available. They may be flipping the switch and creating energy when renewable power is not available, but they're integrating into a cement production process. So they're making their green calcium hydroxide, which may go straight into the concrete and may go as a act as a calcination step to put the calcium hydroxide into uh, the kilns. That's actually, I don't know immediately what the, how they've changed their product. Okay. So you're saying that yours is a, a circular process but a once-free version of your process um, in principle is able to be used to make green cement. So that will calcine instantly and then carbonate slowly while it's in the building or the bridge or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, you're just two different people skinning a cat in two different ways, right? I, I think that's uh, probably fair enough for this conversation, yeah. And An heirloom is somewhat similar to your process in that it's a round-and-round process. So that the calcium ions are reused. You don't have to continually supply it with li with limestone, and the output is not used for cement in the heirloom process. But your but the calcination step, the you know the the liberation of the carbon dioxide from the calcium ions is not done in the same way for heirloom as it's done with sublime systems. So you've got if 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 heirloom and sublime systems had a baby, then you would be a bit like that baby. Yeah, sure. I, I like that. Uh, okay, fine. Right. So, um, what is different and special about what you're doing? This is obviously a million and one different. Right. So, people uh, doing CDR, but is yours very cheap to set up, very cheap to run, very small quantities, very large quantities? What was great about your process? First and foremost, uh, what we're trying to do is uh, take whatever director capture energy that we're using and apply the lowest cost electricity to that process. So if we want to run heirlooms process, let's say around the clock, you need firm spectral power that's clean. Uh, if you are creating that with solar or wind, plus the energy storage necessary to keep that um, keep that process running 24-7, you're going to be paying a lot for your power. Let's say if you but why have, do you want to run it off dispatchable electricity? I mean, like, why don't you run it off gas? I mean, carbon engineering are doing what you're doing fundamentally. Chemically, they're doing the same thing, right? And they're doing it with gas. Now, I think they might be changing that process. But what's bearing in mind, you've got something that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And the main disadvantage of using fossil fuels is they put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Then is there really a big disadvantage to using gas to fire the process? I mean, I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, I think why is heirloom not using a gas-fired calciner? Um, I guess you could say you can use a gas-fired calciner. That's what Eight Rivers is doing. Uh, oh, I, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that Eight Rivers had a gas fired calcite. So just jog, jog my and everybody else's memories to what Eight Rivers do. Uh, yeah, it's essentially what Heirloom's doing, but instead of an electric calciner, I believe they're using an oxy fired calciner. Uh, okay, I can, so I can be firing. Okay, they, they, fine. Well, let's assume let's assume you're right because I haven't. I mean, it's <laughs> we the primary the primary objective of this is to introduce the science and the prices to people. The brand names are just a way of providing a convenient handle so so you can remember each one, right? Right. So let's assume that you're doing that eight rivers thing correctly. So oxyfuel combustion, I think that's what Origin do. So they purify the oxygen. So instead of separating the, calcium, the carbon dioxide from the flow at the back end of the process, they're separating the oxygen from the nitrogen at the front end of the process. So you're burning pure oxygen inside your kiln so that you own, as long as you've got a stoichiometric ratio, you get pretty much 100% carbon dioxide out of the back end of the process. That's how it works fundamentally, right? Yes. Um, so, you're so, so you've got the op, you've got the option to do something like the Eight Rivers process, but you've chosen to do it with renewable electricity. And I guess the logic for that would be that as power grids have more and more and more renewables, 
on the grid, the difference between the lowest price and the highest price on the grid is astronomical because the, if there's any kind of combustion process at all on the grid, then you can just turn that on and off easily because it's dispatchable power. And the economics of renewable energies change utterly as soon as you get to the point where there's little or no dispatchable power on the grid from fossil fuels because you then pretty much have to take the energy that you've got, not the energy you might want, right? And so you have these massive price crashes and price rises when um, through the day or through the year. So right now, looking out my window in Britain, it's sunny and it's relatively cool day. So the solar power plants are working really well and uh, air conditioning systems aren't running because it's too cold for anybody to bother putting on their aircon, even if they have it, which most British people don't. And so there will be very, very little demand on the grid at the moment. And if this was a Sunday and not a Friday, then there'd be even less because not so many people would be taking trains and there wouldn't be so many industrial plants running. And so you might have uh, a near zero or negative power prices. And so you're, as, as a grid becomes more and more like that on a reg, more and more regular basis, then your process becomes economically more and more viable as we move to a situation where we have more renewables and we shuffle our demand around to kind of fit around those renewables rather than fitting our power generation around the power demand that's on the grid at the moment right that's the fundamental principle yeah essentially uh the the cost of electricity from renewables is cheap dispatchable power is dirty currently right it's on a grid your, your dispatchable power is uh going to create a lot of marginal emissions in in your grid and those, I think all those marginal emissions would be applied to new source of demand like direct air capture trying to run basically any hour, almost any hour of, of the year, except for a few small, yeah. a few grids at a few times, right? So we're trying to completely avoid the marginal emissions challenges of taking grid emissions or, or having those grid emissions ascribed to our direct air captures LCA. And we're trying to be able to uh, run on the cleanest zero carbon hours or with dedicated renewable power off-grid or behind the meter such that we can be certain about our uh, carbon intensity. So you're, you're, basically this, you're basically the overnight storage heater of the direct capture world, right? So in uh, Britain, people, or certainly a few years ago in Britain, people used to fit a lot of uh, storage heaters, which are basically piles of bricks with electrical wires in them, and they get hot overnight, and then they keep your house hot during the day because they've got a lot of thermal mass, right? And the idea being that you get cheap electricity, heat your house up overnight and it stays warm in the day. Uh, it was a terrible idea and people hate it, but it kind of works to a point. If you like to be very hot when you get out of bed in the morning and uh, very cold at all other times of day, it's great. Um, so you're you're following a, a similar concept in terms of your design, that you're, you're allowing the use of this cheap electricity. So when it comes out to the economics, then how do you think you're going to square up to people that need like the eight rivers that are going to run off gas, so they don't really care about the time of day because they can just store the gas, right? Yeah, so gas is a very tricky beast. Obviously, you may be able to do some emissions control by making sure you're capturing every bit of gas that you're combusting. Maybe, especially that works if you have an oxy-fire combustion. And well, you don't have to, do you? Because, I well, let me explain. Like, I mean, I think it's important to look at the maths here, right? So you're, you're, you, can call, you can capture an awful lot of carbon dioxide with not a lot of gas input, right? So even if you're process is leaky like so if you're using an externally fired cement kiln trying to think who's got an externally fired cement kiln but some people have got externally fired cement kiln so they've got gas that runs a cement kiln but the gas doesn't go through the cement it goes outside the cement so all of the carbon dioxide that comes off the cement is all contained in a nice neat process emissions capture process so you don't need to capture it with any kind of sorbent it just comes off as a pure stream of co2 okay but the but the flame gas just vents out to atmosphere up a conventional chimney with no CCS. And that still works because you're releasing a lot less gas, CO2 from your gas, than you are capturing from your calcining process. So it isn't important that most of the gas or all of the gas that you're burning is vented to atmosphere because you're not actually um, messing up your economics. I think the ratio is like about eight to one, 10 to one, something like that, right? So for every uh, one molecule of CO2 you're releasing from your externally fired calcina then you're capturing about 10 molecules of co2 from your from your process emissions right that's roughly how i understand the economics to be 
you know, to the right order of magnitude. I'm not saying it's exactly 10. I think it's more like eight, but you know, it's it's not it's not a hundred and it's not, you know, 10% difference, right? So you could do it like that. And that's what I think some I can't remember which companies do which, because then now an awful lot of that companies and I lose track of who's doing what. But I think there are at least there are at least some people who've got a, an external calciner that that works in that way. But your process, you think that you're going to be able to get your off-peak electricity cheaper than you get the same amount of energy from gas, roughly. Yeah? Um, so kind of kind of correct, kind of wrong. First of all, I think we're not aiming for the lowest we're aiming for low cost power and low low opex overall. But the goal is really to make sure that we are deployable as we can move forward in the future. Will gas uh continue to increase in its its prices? Because that changes a lot about the economics. Will those eight to ten percent of emissions that are being lost in say externally fired kiln, that means the cost of carbon removal is going to increase by ten to whatever fifteen percent. Yeah, because you've got to uh, capture whatever you've right. added through the process, right? So right. what you're basically saying, if I might, if I understand if I understand your logic, is that while there is a bit of low cost energy on the grid at the moment due to the presence of solar and wind and stuff like that, you're expecting that to become much more of a thing in future, and therefore you're going to have a lot of power that you can use in this process just to get rid of this cheap electricity in the grid because people just won't be able to use it for anything else right you know if you don't want to sit and play your xbox at four o'clock in the morning then you're not going to go and set an alarm to get out of bed and play an xbox at four o'clock in the morning just because the electricity cheap right so there's a uh, uh you, you've got a process which is you can turn on and off as as the economics start to make sense right i i want to say yes that's all true but that's not how we're actually intending to operate we're intending to operate with dedicated or behind the meter renewable or, or wind power meaning that instead of thinking about it as a grid connection where we're taking the power price or that's clean and low we want to run off grid right where we're taking fully why why would why? you do that this is a comes down to how we're deploying and the cost of electricity getting electricity to our site if you if well, we let need, me let me explain hold on let me explain why why i think that might be the wrong approach and you can tell me why i misunderstand your process right so the logic is that when you're connected to a grid, you're providing a grid stabilization role that wouldn't otherwise be available. Yeah. So you're, what you're basically saying is that you can build a wind turbine in your garden, right? So one of the disadvantages is that you're probably not as good at building wind turbines as you are at building direct air capture plants. And therefore, you're doing someone else's job for them. That might not be the most efficient way of doing a job, right? The second thing is that grid stabilization is a valuable service in and of itself, right? So if you're connected to the grid and you're helping to stabilize the grid, then it would appear to, to be the case you would have a greater economic benefit than if you were trying to generate your own power, right? You're absolutely right. And, and we think that there are some value, there is some value to grid stabilization and, and offering to run direct capture this way. The problem comes down to scale. Are we going to be able to take all of the grid's excess power at any given time from one single cement plant or one single director capture plant and its power connection? This gets into the question of why, why not? distributed batteries taking this negative power price why are we taking you know, why, why is it all director capture why not bitcoin why not hydrogen yeah well let me explain where, where i think this might or might not be useful right so if you've got somewhere where you've got a low power demand economy with good renewable resource like stranded renewables right so a great example is uh, the skeleton coast in west africa where there's nobody around you've got this kind of uninhabitable wind-blown salt desert over much of West Africa, and you know, no one lives there. There's nothing to do. No, nothing grows. There's no reason to be there. But there's loads of wind resource. So, you know, storage aside, that would make a great place to put this stranded renewables, right? Because you're getting really good utilization in your wind turbines. You would make a lot of sense for you to locate your power production there because you get essentially very cheap power. The disadvantage of that is that you've got to go and do it in a complicated place, but. You know, when the energy cost is dominant, people go all over the world. To, that's why I, our Iceland has aluminium smelting. It's not because they okay. use a lot of aluminium in, in, in Iceland. It's because the power is cheap, right? So that's the, the logic. And you're saying that it makes more sense for you to use cheap power in inaccessible places than to plug into the grid. Because although your grid stabilization has value, it's better for you to build wind turbines in the middle of inaccessible deserts. Like take somewhere like a mountain that hasn't got a lot of population, but it's got so you've got the Peridon type four four oh one plant out there. So they've got really, really high levels of disposal, but not a big population, so not a lot of energy use in in the in the country. But it's a great place for disposal and it's also quite windy, so you can put out solar or wind in Amani Desert 
and get very cheap power, right? That's your logic. Yeah, that, that's exactly like it. We're like, we're like aluminum. We're trying to chase the, the cheap, clean power. Okay, so how much cheaper? What What is the net benefit of all this? The net benefit is, you know, we're aiming for whatever, 30 to $40 per megawatt hour clean power that's running whatever, 30 to 40% of the year. Uh, that is really destroys the economics for hydrogen. That destroys the economics for direct air capture. But for us, because we're combining, we're producing both hydrogen and this CO2 from direct air capture, we can blend the economics. And that means that right. uh, whatever we sell the hydrogen for, that's that revenue decreases our overall costs for director capture, which means that we can essentially make both processes affordable. So what, so what does hydrogen go for? Is hydrogen about $20 a ton, isn't it? I mean, that's that's pretty high. But yeah, I, I think in some cases, in some strained or high demand places, that number is probably close. But I think we're today, hydrogen prices for people who are getting it put into a tube truck and delivered to their site, like a glass manufacturer may pay something like $16 per kilogram or uh, or $16 per, or $16, uh, $1,600 per ton. But we really think that, that is going to be hard to- Okay, so I was, three, I was three orders of magnitude out. It's not $20 a ton, it's $20 a kilo, right? Right, $20 a kilo if you're incredibly lucky. And I don't think, we, we, we never actually expect to make that kind of money. We're trying to build something that is affordable versus kind of the cost of gas with uh, with the carbon benefits kind of looped in. That's in the order. So, so you're, you're expecting to get $1,600 a ton for your hydrogen, and then you're expecting your direct air capture price to be what, considering that you're getting $1,600 a ton for your hydrogen? Yeah, so uh, look, our ultimate goal is to get to $1 per kilogram hydrogen and $100 per ton direct air capture at the same time. Okay. I mean, that's very low price for hydrogen. Surely you'd expect yeah. to get bit more for that hydrogen than that right oh yeah yeah that, so these are that's like how we're trying to average out our costs these are not prices these are our but, you're, but your economic okay so your economics for hydrogen i mean hydrogen's dominant in what you're doing right the, um, the 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 value of the co2 the co2 is more like a byproduct right the economics are dominated by the hydrogen price, right yep. actually it's the, it's the inverse usually our process our, our process it, it does depend on the value of the hydrogen but the process works out to where we are making probably roughly 50 a third to a half of our revenue comes from hydrogen. It's not a, I wouldn't call this a byproduct. No, I don't understand one. that. You're making one, to, one mole to one mole, right? Yeah, so like 20, 20, 22 times more CO2 by mass. Oh, so you make a lot more CO2 by mass than you, right, That's okay. Great. So, oh, okay, I see what you mean. Because the CO, so it's molar to molar. So you've got a lot more mass of CO2 in your process, even though molar to the mole, the mole fraction is one to one but your mass fraction is massively skewed towards CO2. And that's why you generate more per ton uh, on the on the CO2 than you do on the hydrogen, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, fine. Right, I think I'll get the economics now. And so you think, sorry, you, but you think the long-term price of hydrogen is going to be $1 a kilo. I mean, why would you work it out on that and not on something more realistic like 10 or whatever? <laughs> this comes down to the cost to compete with fossil hydrogen. Right, fossil hydrogen is used in steel, ammonia, whatever, methanol. And it's used in a lot cost? of places, and that cost is very low. It is often in this $1 per kilogram range. I think switching costs are actually a little bit low that. We're mostly trying to outcompete electrolyzer technologies to make sure we're getting clean hydrogen. Okay, so you're, trying to com you're trying to compete with green hydrogen, but you're pricing gray hydrogen, right? Just yeah. sort of note, show that your economics can work. Okay, that's, but that's still, because there's a lot more, there's a lot more CO2 by mass that's coming out of your process. The economics, but are dominant by the large number of tons of CO2, even though your mole fraction is one to one. Yeah, that's correct. And so, where do you think you're going to be in terms of competing with other people on price? Like, if the economics of CO2 are dominant, then do you think you're going to be cheaper than airline, cheaper than eight rivers, cheaper than carbon engineering, cheaper than climbworks? Yeah, we definitely think we'll be cheaper than everybody. Um, <laughs> that was the, the goal. That how we designed the process was from... But how come you haven't got like 100 people working to you for you and $100 million in the bank? This is a, a brand new process. We just finished proving it in the lab. We're just getting started. That's why. Early days here. Okay, venture capitalists take note. Fine. So you're in the process of going around trawling for some funds, I imagine, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And what do you plan to raise by when? Yeah, so I think we're we're essentially looking for. Um, I mean, the, the exact numbers are uh, whatever you want them to be. Let's call it. Let's say roughly 
3 million pounds secured sometime in the next six months so that we can build out the team and get to our next, our next, basically scale it from our gram per day to a ton per All day right. building. I just have to do a little spiel right now. So we're not affiliated with any fundraising efforts. We're not promoting your fundraising efforts. And we have to warn people that they shouldn't put any money in to early stage startups in this sector. They're not prepared to lose 100% of their investment on. Um, so there you go. That keeps me out of jail. You're looking to raise about 3 million quid. And, and are you looking to raise that from venture capital, from public subscription, or what? Have you got a crowdfunding raise going on at the moment, or what? Yeah, largely venture capital. And you're not, you're not considered crowdfunding then as an alternative. You want to get specialists special, like lower carbon capital or whatever to come in. Yeah. Give, yeah, give yeah. it the money you need. Yeah, the crowdfunding. So, I mean, I guess technically it can work. It probably works for some. It just it seems strange. But who, what, <laughs> what venture cut funds are you talking to? I mean, imagine lower carbon capital would be an obvious one for you to talk to. Is that, is yeah, that the kind of firm that you're chatting to? Yeah, we're talking to everybody. I just assume we've talked to them <laughs> or are talking to them. Okay. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. And what's the reaction? What's the reaction that you've had from the people that you've chatted to? Yeah. I mean, uh, inevitably, every time we get through scientific due diligence, this is everyone loves the process. Uh, we love it. We know other people love it as well. And we're all very excited to, to get to building. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's just not answering the question, though, is it? Like, people might love your process, but they might have other reasons for not investing, right? They might think that your team isn't very strong. You're not very commercially driven. You might, they might think that um, your process is quite easy to copy. So what, what feedback have you had from investors that you've spoken to? Yeah, yeah. The number one feedback we get is grams per day, uh, you know, come back when, when it's a little bit bigger. So we're, we're, we're right now, we're halfway through constructing our kilogram per day process, and we're going to be there soon. Okay. And when you say grams per day, like you've got something that basically works in a, on a kitchen table type thing, right? Yeah. I, mean, I call it a, a, a basement lab table. But yeah, it's... Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, a ben, it's a bench top prototype, and then you go from there to a skid prototype, and then you go from there to a containerized prototype, and then you go from there to build out a full scale plant, right, or a demonstrate yeah. scale plant, and then, but it's yeah. a, you know, it's a practical industrial facility, and then you build a large practical industrial facility, right? Yeah. So you're just relatively early in your trajectory, but you're kind of on the way, right? All right, fine. Well, we've had a bit of an overview of your background, your chemical process, the state you're in with investment, the plans you've got for investment, the pros and cons of your process. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about or not? Yeah, I mean, you're a reviewer too. I'm so you're surprised you haven't grilled me on the really intricate moral and sensible arguments of using renewable power for DAC and hydrogen instead of grid decarbonization, you know, uh, most well, technocratic economic I, no, efficiencies. I, I, <laughs> Well, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, I think exactly the opposite argument supply, that the more applications that you have can suck up surplus power on the grid, the more opportunity there is for you to stabilise the grid and roll out renewables. And the more, uh, the more that you buy wind turbines, the cheaper wind turbines get, it's not like the world can only make 100 wind turbines a year and you're stealing them all for that. It's the exact opposite situation that, you know, if you buy a 30 wind turbines, then you have a capacity of 200 wind turbines where you previously had a capacity of 100 wind turbines because you're scaling up your factory, your know-how, your process, you're reducing the cost curve. I just don't, I don't see, I don't, you can, if you want to go and find Luddites, there are plenty of other podcasts that, that, that you're <laughs> going to find Luddites on, but we don't let them on. So I don't have any, any concerns. I mean, basically what you told me all stacks. The only, the only thing that I think is questionable is that I think you'd be better off grid connecting what you do because i think that your grid services are something you probably haven't built into the model to the extent that you might like there's a lot of grids that need so uh if you've got a relatively high renewables grid i'm trying to think where high renewables low dispatchability so norway for example has got very high dispatchability but it's got very low so somewhere like for example southern spain has got a lot of uh, solar and they're having problems with grid saturation California's got problems with grid saturation as well. Um, and um, that where any, anywhere we've got curtailment in a renewables grid is a, good, um, is a good place to go. I think California, to be fair, might have the opposite problem. So that they're struggling to power in, um, uh, they're struggling to deliver power in the, in the air conditioning systems. But I can't remember. But the, the point I'm making is that I think the, if I was in your position, I'd be focusing on trying to find grids where they need to get rid of the, 
the excess power on the grid, right? Because yeah. I think your 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 grid services are kind of under under examined part of your mix. That's the only criticism I've got. Cool. I, I want to just comment there that if you think about what our DAC process or plant or facility will look like at scale, and we're talking about utility scale solar project, like a hundred megawatts to power do a large scale DAC process. Are we going to have a hundred megawatt grid connection? Uh, definitely not. Well, right. This is a matter well, of, yeah, we, yeah, we but, absolutely but, can take a couple of megawatts here and there from the grid, and we will. I think that it makes sense to ha- offer those services, but it won't power the whole process. And we, I don't think we're trying to design uh, other than early well, let days. Me, we'll let, me, the well, let me explain. Let me explain why I disagree with what you've just said. Cool. None of what you're saying suggests to me that your process requires a large scale to operate. You've basically got a vat of chemicals with two electrodes in it and then some trays that get left out in the wind, right? None of that needs to be operated on this giant scale. You're far better. When I went to Climeworks about eight, ten years ago, and they built some of their early uh, their Hinway plant, and I said to them, "I think you should shut down what you've built and build a car factory, right?" And that is kind of what they ended up doing, right? Probably not because I told them. They probably had to be. They probably had to wait for some consultant to tell them the same thing for fifty thousand dollars rather than me telling them for free. But but the end result was that they moved to a much more modular, much more standardized process. And my suggestion is that you build it at the minimum efficient scale, not the maximum efficient scale, and then right. concentrate on all of the different use cases where there's a heterogeneous price for carbon dioxide. So, for example, manufacturing jet fuel on aircraft carriers, making, you know, growing tomatoes in CO2 saturated greenhouses, all of these little processes where you can containerize what you're doing, use it for marginal uh, and heterogeneously priced use cases where you've got small volumes. At high prices in places where you need relatively remote kit to do what you're doing, automate that kit and um, ha- have it working where you can get the power benefits. I get that you can build something like what you're doing in Amman, and that makes some sense, but you don't have to do it in Amman. And the, if you can get money for the grid services, your company has a much better pathway to scale by building out small to medium scale. Than it does by building out a very, very, very large scale. There's no, it's not a process which is scale dependent. Your process doesn't get easier when you're doing bazillions of tons, right? There's plenty of places in America and in the UK, for example, where you've got CO2 disposal infrastructure that you can plug into. You've also got grid connections where you can, the grid services are beneficial. So it's, it's very hard to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in any business. You normally have to be able to go. 10 miles an hour 20 miles an hour and do each of those stages profitably and the risk of what you're doing is that you're very very focused on working at, at, at gargantuan scale and you're proving out a benchtop scale but you're not giving an investor a clear path to get between the two and and working at a mid small to mid scale where you're looking at heterogeneous prices for use cases for the co2 you're looking at plugging into existing disposal networks rather than having to build your own and you're looking at selling grid services gives you that path to scale maybe your process works at enormous scale we hope it does but you're never going to find that out unless you've got ways of doing the process cheaply in an economically beneficial fashion as you scale right i agree with absolutely everything you just said and i i uh being being on the geoengineering podcast the reason i'm talking about 100 megawatt like large scale plants is because we're talking about cdr but everything you just highlighted is exactly our plan and our route to scale up we are looking through these other opportunities for price (laughs) Cost arbitrage. Yeah, look, we're, we're all yeah, about absolutely. scale, but you actually get there. You can't just like yeah. arrive at scale, wake <laughs> up in the morning and say, oh, I had a benchtop plant last yeah. night. And then I woke up in the morning and outside my house is an 11 bazillion megawatts yeah. globally significant DAC plant. That's just never going to happen, right? I so totally agree. My we interest in it. Today is, is on the skid and the containerized designs. Those, those are our first step, and that's exactly how we're entering the market. We aren't looking at generating these large engineering projects from day one. Our technology is inherently modular. That's intentional so that we can keep a, a firm eye on budgets and deliveries and timelines, making sure that it's going to work at the small scale and then we can scale it up by numbers as we grow. And there is some nice... Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Scaling up by numbers is... Yeah, a lot of people just forget the importance of scaling by numbers. They think the scale comes from just making yeah. the same thing bigger. But if you look at the price curve, and as long as you don't have heat transfer, which is the enemy of any small scale process, but if you're not if you're not in a process with a lot of heat transfer, and yours inherently is a cold process, so you're not doing a lot of heat transfer, right? 
Yeah, exactly right. Then you just you just don't have big economies of scale. I mean, yeah, your reaction vessel, you know, there's a there's a volume issue with your reaction vessel in that you've got the more, you know, if you've got a swimming pool full of acid, you're building less vessel wall than if you've got something the size of a thermos flask, right? So there's a bit of a scaling issue on CapEx there, but it's not dominant, right? And it's certainly not dominant in your OPEX because you haven't got heat transfer, right? That's all right. And so your process is naturally very friendly to being built at a small scale, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely it lends itself well to these small scales. Uh, okay. Getting large scale gets into the economics of CO2 compression and storage. Obviously, that favors large scales. And we, when we're talking about... Yeah, but that's someone else's problem. Yeah, I, it's, someone else's yeah problem. It, it's definitely someone else's problem, but by extension, our problem. Oh, not really. I don't agree because there are plenty of people in the world who make it their business to compress and store CO2. And all you have to do is make friends with them. You don't have to be, you don't have to do their job, right? I think it's unwise for you to try and do other people's job. Likewise, I think that if you can make your calcining step work well and cheaply, then you might find that heirloom are better at making contactors than you are. And so you might find that getting out of the contactor game is a good way of making what you're doing work better, right? So I, I, my instinct is that concentrating on a very small part of the process, but doing it very, very well, like better than everybody, is, uh, is a better way of you growing what you do rather than trying to do everything and just tolerating being kind of okay-ish <laughs> of what you do, right? We totally agree. That's why we are focused largely on the IP around our electrolyzer and our regeneration step. We expect you know, everyone's got their own designs for air contractors, and ours may not be the best. It may, it may be great because of uh, how our particles are reactive, uh, the reactivity of our particles, and not because of our yeah. air contractor design. So, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're open to future collaborations. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is in terms of actually making money, then you have to recognize that a lot of the time, the, the companies that are very large in the industry aren't actually very good at what they do. They've just got lots of money. And what they do is they go and buy lots of other smaller, more innovative companies like drug companies get bought all the time. Like, There's no real like if you run a small drug company, there is no exit route. There is no way of making money out of a small drug company other than getting built, bought by a large drug company. Right. And so you can kind of think of people like Climeworks and uh, Carbon Engineering, not as uh, as carbon dioxide removal companies. But it's also helpful to think of them as being more like venture capital firms. So what they do is they'll, they'll start, if they haven't done it already, they'll start going around fairly soon and snaffling up all of these other companies that are developing different parts of the process that they're just not so good at. And, and, um, and, and as a result of doing that, they become you know, globally dominant in the industry, but without necessarily doing a lot of R&D themselves. Now, you know, I've, as far as I know, that's not how they're growing their businesses right now, but it's a pretty inevitable step. You know, a lot of the innovation, like companies like Microsoft, for example, are very famous for buying a lot of technology. And, you know, I work in my commercial work, like I don't pay for my geoengineering stuff. It just costs me lots of money and time and uh, <laughs> makes me feel slightly smug. But that's all I get out of it. Uh, the um, My commercial work has, has been in tech for much of the last decade and a half. and in Britain, selling your company to Microsoft is a perfectly legitimate exit path. You know, we don't do a lot of IPOs in Britain and selling British companies to American companies is a very well tried and tested route for people to make money out of, right? That's how you intend to get your yacht and live the gangster rap lifestyle, right? If you're a US, a UK based uh, tech nerd. So I, I like everything you were doing and saying. I just want to see you actually perform. And I think that the chance of you performing are going to be much higher if you, A, concentrate on what you're really good at rather than trying to do 11 different things all at once. And also if you focus on having path to scale that doesn't involve going from zero to hero. Yeah, absolutely. We, we are focused on that modular first scale, something that we can number up. Uh, that, that's, that's, our, that's our goal. Okay. Well, you haven't got a paper to reject, and I probably wouldn't reject it anyway. I just want to see if you can walk the walk rather than just talking the talk anyone can come up with good stories and it'd be interesting to see how well you do but good luck to you it's going to take lots of people doing kind of what you do over a long period of time to get anywhere in this industry and 95 percent of the people will be revealed by history to be carefully disguised idiots uh, and who, who won't actually achieve what they set out to achieve so um that's 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 what i think awesome 
Have you got, well, have you got anything you'd like to say or not? No, I'm firmly disappointed to not be rejected, but uh, I definitely think maybe next well, time. You haven't got a paper. If you've got a paper, I might reject your paper, but you haven't bothered writing because you're too lazy. So I haven't got a paper to reject. So, well, I, I, I might be able to reject your thesis if, if I could see your thesis, but <laughs> I can't see your thesis. I can't see your salt, and you haven't got a paper to reject. So I can reject your entire secret squirrel approach. If you want to be rejected, you're being rejected by being for being a secret squirrel, which is annoying. But other than that, I like pretty much everything I've seen. So I'm being churlish and bitter. But if I wasn't churlish and bitter, then I wouldn't be on Reviewer 2, would I? So I'd go and do something more useful in my life and know loads of money rather than telling everybody else that they don't know what they're doing. So, right, if that's the end of that, then um, you've had your kicking as much as I can give you one, really, because there's not a lot to kick. Um, so thanks for coming on. It's all very lovely. And I hope you do very well and make lots of money and save the world. Yeah, thanks a lot. We'll we'll see you on the other side. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.